You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. If you have a Bible with you this morning, if you will make your way to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 5. Our text for this morning is going to be verses 17 through 26. We have been in this series for some time now. The last two weeks we had guest preachers, and today we are back in this series through the Gospel of Luke called From the Manger to the Throne. Today our text is chapter 5. Verses 17 through 26, I want to invite you to follow along now as we read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, And went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Church, hardly a day goes by when we are not bombarded with bad news. Hardly a day. Whether it's in the headlines, bad news fills the headlines. Like right now, brutal war taking place in Somalia. Or just think about the last six weeks. Mass shootings. One in Nashville, one recently in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm fully aware that in a room this size, that there are some who maybe have received bad news this week or even recently. You've received bad news regarding your health, maybe your finances or even a relationship. See, we live in a broken world filled with bad news. That is one of the reasons we so desperately need Sunday mornings. We need Sunday mornings because when we come together on Sunday, we do so for the sake of hearing and rejoicing in good news. That's what we do when we come together on Sunday mornings. We hear and we rejoice in good news. And I'm convinced 
that good news is good for the soul. As much as bad news is bad for the soul, good news is good for the soul. And when we gather on Sunday mornings, we are coming to hear and to rejoice in good news. Now, let me clarify what I mean when I say that when we gather on Sunday mornings, we come to hear and rejoice in good news. I'm not implying that when we gather, we bury our heads in the sand and act like the world doesn't exist. We're not closing our eyes to the tragedies of life. When we gather, we're not simply believing in some pie-in-the-sky fairy tale beliefs that just make us feel better, so hopefully we can make it through our hard week. No, when we come together as God's people, we do so with our eyes wide open to this evil world. We do. But we look at this world with spiritual eyes that allow us to see the reality of this world from the Lord's perspective. Oh, we come in with our eyes wide open to the evils of this world, but we look at this world with the spiritual eyes that God gives us. And the Lord has revealed to us through the Holy Scripture a message of good news. That's what the Bible is. It's a message of good news. But it's not only a message of good news, it's a message with the best news of all. It's not just good news, it's the best news of all. What is this good news that's the best news? That in the person of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of all of our sins and we can be reconciled to God. That is good news and it is the best news. Listen, no matter what you're going through right now, or no matter what you go through in the days ahead, holding on to that single hope will transform the way you face today and the way you face tomorrow. See, the passage before us this morning here in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26 Here's the message we take away. This passage proclaims that all who trust in Jesus Christ have their greatest need met in Him. That's the takeaway from our text this morning. Simply put, this passage proclaims that all who put their trust in Jesus Christ have had their greatest need met in him. And for us to see that this morning, I want to divide this text into two halves. If you're taking notes, here's our outline. Verses 17 through 20, we're going to see the dramatic entry of the paralytic. And then verses 21 through 26, a discourse about and a demonstration of Jesus's authority. Let's begin with the dramatic entry of the paralytic. And, and let's look at verse 17 again. It says, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, Luke informs us on this particular occasion as Jesus was teaching as he normally did, at this time, there, there was a special group of guests that came to observe him. They came to see the man who they had heard so much about. And we're informed by Luke that this group of observers who had traveled from all over to hear Jesus and to see Jesus, they were called the Pharisees. Now, we're going to hear far more about the Pharisees in the days ahead, but here's, here's what you need to know for today. The Pharisees were one of five groups in Israel made up of Jewish men who had a zeal for the nation, that a zeal for the nation and were seeking to protect their Jewish identity and their way of life. There were five different groups in modern Judaism at that time and the Pharisees were a group that thought the way 
to protect and preserve the Jewish way of life and to protect the nation was by strictly observing the Mosaic law. They thought that's why God is in trouble according to the Old Testament. So if we just follow the law to the nth degree, we will be good. Now, this is our first introduction to the Pharisees in Luke's gospel up to this point. But as you know, this will not be our last encounter with them. They play a prominent part in this story. And on this particular day, we're told that Jesus was not only teaching, but he was fully able to heal the sick if necessary. Enter now, stage right, the friends of the paralytic who are carrying their friend to Jesus to be healed by Jesus. Verses 18 and 19. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. According to verse 9, here are these men, or verse 19, here are these men who are seeking to bring their friend to be healed by Jesus, yet there is a major obstacle. There's a major obstacle standing in the way, but these men aren't deterred. And what is this major obstacle? The massive crowd. Jesus isn't just teaching out in public. He's in a house. He's probably in a small neighborhood. It's, it, it, if the crowds are large, it would have been hard to get to him. But instead of being deter, deterred by the crowd and by the limited access to Jesus, these friends took a drastic and dramatic step of faith. We're told that they removed a portion of the roof of the house in which Jesus was located, and they lowered their friend down through the opening so that he could be seen by Jesus. And he is seen by Jesus. Look at verse 20. And when he, being Jesus, saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, Luke doesn't fill us in with all the details. At what point was the man brought down? Was it while Jesus was teaching? While it, Was it after when he came down to Jesus, stopped what he was doing? All of those things we would like to speculate on. Luke doesn't find it important to tell us all those details, but he does tell us two things that are very important. The first one is upon seeing this man, Jesus commends these men both the paralytic and his friends, for their faith. He commends them for their faith, and this is no small thing. Because this is the first time of many in Luke's gospel where Jesus is going to look at someone and say, here's why you're healed, your faith. Here's why you're free, your faith. This is the first time of many in Luke's gospel where this is going to happen. We could look at many examples. Chapter 7, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 48. Chapter 18, verse 42. These are all passages we could take time to look at this morning. But for time's sake, I'm not going to read all of these. But I do encourage you not only now, but continue to pay attention to this as we make our way through Luke's gospel. Jesus is going to encounter needy people. And his comment to him is not, oh man, you're so worthy. <laughs> That's why you got healed. Are you such a good person? Or my heart just goes out to you. They come with faith, and he said, it's your faith. It's your faith that's going to that's gonna save you. It's your faith that's gonna, that's got you healed. So that's the first thing we notice that Luke tells us. When he sees this man, he commends these men for their faith. And then he tells the paralytic, he doesn't say you're healed. He tells them that his sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know exactly why Jesus told the paralytic at this point that his sins are forgiven. As we make our way through Luke's gospel and Jesus encounters a lot more people who are in need of healing, this isn't the standard thing he tells them. 
So there's something going on here. There appears to be more to the story than Luke tells us in his brief summary. We, we wish we knew more. What was it? But it's important that we see that Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, why does Jesus do this? Once again, we don't know the backstory, so I'm not saying what, what's the connection between this man's sickness and him needing forgiveness. But why does Jesus say this? Well, it's not only to highlight this man's greatest need, but he tells this man that he's forgiven to point out his true identity. By telling him this, it's clear who Jesus really is. If you recall back in chapter 1, when, when John the Baptist is born and his father begins to, to prophesy over him, do you remember in chapter 1, verses 76 through 79, what Zechariah says about John, who will be the forerunner to the Messiah? Listen to what he says. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. So the coming of the Messiah was going to mark a special, unique time. It wasn't just going to be a time of healing. It wasn't just a time for, for God to lay out all these truths that Jesus is going to teach on later on. It's not just a time for Him to deliver people from demonic oppression. His primary reason for coming is for the forgiveness of sins. See, the Lord forgives sins. We know that from the Scriptures. And if the Lord alone can forgive sins, and if Jesus is in turn saying He can forgive sin, and then he turns around and demonstrates that he can forgive sins by healing. What does that mean? That he's God, right? Well, that's exactly how the Pharisees understood Jesus' claim to the paralytic. When they hear what Jesus says, they, they understand what he means when he says your sins are forgiven. He's not just like a priest trying to absolve somebody of their sins. He's not just a preacher saying, hey, listen, our God forgives. He's actually personally saying, I am like God. I am God. I am forgiving you. And the Pharisees get it. That brings us to our second half of this passage. We now are going to look at a discourse about and a demonstration of Jesus's authority. Look, look what happens in verse 21. Upon Jesus saying this, we're told, and the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Upon hearing Jesus say this to the paralytic, it says they began to question, and the, the, the way that the, the grammar is, it, it appears that they're not doing this out loud. But they're beginning to question, and it's important we understand what that word questioning means here. It doesn't mean question like to, it's like, I, I wonder. The word, it, it, it means to debate, to disagree, to protest. So they hear what Jesus said, and they're not saying, huh, I wonder if he really is God. Because only God can forgive sins. No, they, they're disagreeing. They're protesting his statement. And they, they protest in way of bringing together two questions. Two questions that we see here in verse 21. Their first question is, who is this who speaks blasphemies? And who can forgive sins but God alone? Now think about this. Both of those questions are based on good theology. Because only God alone can forgive sins. And if someone's saying they can forgive sins, you know what they're doing? They're committing blasphemy. So these Pharisees are coming with good theology. 
but wrongly applied. You know what they're in danger of? The very thing they're accusing Jesus of. Blasphemy. Good theology, wrongly applied, can leave you some pretty bad places. And the Pharisees are in that place. See, the Pharisees are dead wrong about their assumptions. And they're not dead wrong in light of what they say. If someone claims to forgive sins and they're not God, they are blaspheming. They're dead wrong in not what they say, but who they say it about. As they look at Jesus, they say, yeah, that that can't be true. Because therefore you're not God. See, the question we must ask ourselves this morning is, who is this who makes such a claim? This is a radical claim. One that we just can't look past and think, okay. We, we need to be like the Pharisees. Either that's true and he's God, or someone needs to take this man out because he is speaking blasphemy. We can't be neutral. Either he is and he's Lord or he isn't and he's a blaspheming lunatic. But he can't just be a good teacher. So how do we come to grips with who he is? C.S. Lewis, the late author and professor and Christian apologist, He responded to that question of who Jesus is and that he can forgive sins with the following statements. He says, not unless the speaker, now unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announces that he forgave you for treading on another man's toe and stealing another man's money? Yet, this is what Jesus did. He told people their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. And he closes with this. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws have been broken. See, this is one of those moments where we must say, who is this who speaks such words? How do we know that he's not a lunatic, but that he's Lord? Look what happens now in verse 22. Jesus, we're told, perceives their thoughts. And he answers them. Why do you question in your hearts? So Jesus, knowing what was taking place, he perceives, Luke says, their thoughts. And that word for thoughts in the Greek, when it's used anywhere else in Luke's gospel, always refers to evil thoughts. In other words, Jesus knew the Pharisees' hearts. He wasn't buying their logic. He knew what was producing their conclusion. Evil thoughts. Their reason for rejecting his identity was not based on fact, but on false premise. I love what Jesus does here. Notice how he responds at the end of verse 22. He says, why do you question in your hearts? In typical fashion, as he will do here and many more times, he answers their question with a question. He answers their question with a question, and by doing so, he made them question their own question. Jesus is a brilliant apologist. See, Jesus 
brings up a question that makes them, forces them to question their own question. Because here was the problem. The problem in their mind was this man is saying this and we are certain that he's wrong. And Jesus is saying, why, why are you so certain? And aren't we just the same? How often do we question the loopholes in our arguments? No, actually, we're pretty confident in our arguments. And everyone else, we can find the loopholes in their answers. And Jesus says, wait a minute. How do you know your, your, your questions are right? How, how do you know that they're not based on a false premise and not on fact? He's calling them to, to stop and to really think about why are you questioning me? And the reason is because there's things wrong in your heart that's leading you here. But notice what Jesus does. He could have just left them with that. He could have just heard their questions, said, I'm going to answer your question with a question and cause you to question your questions, the end. But he doesn't. Look what Jesus said next and what he did next. Because what he says and what he does silences any questions about his authority to forgive sins. Verse 23. Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? So After calling them to question what they're believing, he then asked them, this question, which one is easier to say? I, I believe Jesus was asking this question in order to demonstrate his authority. Think about it. If only the Lord can forgive sin, and it is God who heals people, that means the answer to Jesus' question is simple. Well, neither one is easy to, to say. So what we need to take away, I believe, from Jesus' statement where he's asking them which one is easier to say, he's asking them which one is easier to prove. He's saying, okay, so you're, you're hearing me say, I can forgive sins. You're obviously upset about this. And you're thinking, who can say such a thing? So let me ask you, which one is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or, or rise and, and walk? And then we're told what he does next. Verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Notice what Jesus says to the man or what he says to the Pharisees and the crowd, he uses a messianic term that they would have all heard clearly as a messianic term. He says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I'm going to turn around and tell this guy to get up. And if he does, what does that mean? Now, did we forget about the guy who came for healing? Because he's kind of been put over to the side for a moment while Jesus and, and the Pharisees have been having this conversation. But notice what Jesus is using. He's using this healing as an example, as a demonstration of his authority. After he tells this man, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees say, you can't say that. Jesus says, I understand. How would you know that I can forgive unless I prove it to you? So let me prove it to you. Looks at the guy says, Rise, take up your stuff, go home. And you know what we're told in verse 25? He rises, he picks up his stuff, and he goes home. And you know what that implies? Not only that the man was healed, but that everything Jesus said was fulfilled. Jesus says, get up, he got up. Jesus says, pick up things, picks up his things. He says, go home. He goes home. You see, the healing of the paralytic demonstrates 
that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. That's the whole point of this healing. It's not simply about this man who's unable to walk. It's about something far bigger. Jesus is saying by demonstrating this, I am proving to all here that his sins are forgiven because I have authority to do that. And we're told this man getting what just happened went home glorifying God, but he wasn't the only one. He wasn't the only one affected by this demonstration of Jesus's authority. Look at the last thing Luke tells us in this passage. And amazement sees them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After hearing what Jesus said and then seeing what he did, Luke informs us that everyone in the house, everyone out in the street, all the crowd, anyone who knew what was taking place, everyone was astonished at what just occurred and they knew the reason for it. They knew this was the work of God himself. We're told they all left saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, don't miss the importance of the word today. You recall back to chapter four, verse 21. This word today is an important word in Luke's gospel. Do you remember what took place in Luke 4? Jesus goes into the synagogue, finds the scroll of Isaiah, reads Isaiah 61, sits down and says, Today, upon your hearing this, this was fulfilled. And if you recall, what we realize was when Jesus said today, he didn't mean that before that very moment, those truths weren't fulfilled. He meant right now upon you hearing this, there's an urgency, there's an immediacy, there's a nowness to it upon you hearing this. This has been true. But it's true for you right now. See, Luke doesn't tell us whether those who left the house that day put their faith in Jesus. He leaves that question unanswered. Unanswered for them, but it must not be unanswered for us. See, I think by the way of the way that Luke shares this story, gives us the impression that we too must respond to Christ with faith. Amazement is not the same as faith in Christ. Do not read verse 26 as people putting their faith in Jesus, because what I'm reading here, and I could be wrong, but what I'm reading here is everyone there, including the Pharisees, were amazed and were glorifying God, and yet they don't have faith. Everybody there was like, whoa, okay, that's clear. But the question is not, what did they think in the moment? The question is, did they put their faith in Christ? See, we must exhibit faith like the paralytic and his friends. The kind of faith that Jesus commends here and will commend all throughout the gospel of Luke. And here's the thing, the kind of faith that we're being called to must be rooted and grounded in who Jesus is, his identity, he is the son of God incarnate, and the kind of faith we're called to have in Christ must be rooted and grounded, not just in who he is, but in what he has done in order to demonstrate that our sins are forgiven. So this isn't just a a general faith. Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I have faith. 
It's a faith in his identity and it's a faith in who he is and what he has done. Which means that if we're going to rightly reflect on the story we just read, we must do so in light of the ending of Luke's gospel. I would make the case we have to read all of Luke's gospel in light of the end. All of the gospels, not just Luke's, all of the gospels in light of the end. But, but I believe in this particular story, we cannot, we cannot, and we must not read this story without reading it in light of the ending. See, the cross in which Jesus will die on, it casts its shadow over this passage. Do you see it? The shadow of the cross has been hanging over this passage as we've been reading it and thinking about it. And we must see the shadow that hangs over this passage. So let me point out a few observations of how we see the shadow of the cross in this particular passage. One of the things we see in the shadow is it's through the opposition with the Pharisees. This is now the first of five consecutive stories in which there will be conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. After this story will be four more stories where the Pharisees are going to hear Jesus, see Jesus, and say, No, you're wrong. Five stories in a row where the Pharisees are going to be in opposition to Jesus. Tom Schreiner, a great commentator, says it this way, the conflict and the next five stories cast the shadow of the cross over Jesus' ministry. How so? Because who is it in the end, and who is it all throughout the Luke's gospel who says, we got to find a way to, to do in this guy? It's the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees. And guess what? Here's the second observation. What will the Pharisees charge Jesus with in order for him to be crucified? Blasphemy. Do you see a foreshadowing already? They see him do all this and they say, you're blaspheming. And that will be the very charge that they will bring that will be the cause of Jesus' condemnation and crucifixion. Because according to the law of Moses, committing the sin of blasphemy was punishable by death. So what we're seeing early on in Luke chapter 5, we already see the shadow just coming in. But there's one Last observation that shows us the shadow of the cross on this passage. Jesus declares that he can forgive sin. And though he demonstrates through the healing of the paralytic that he had authority to do so, it leaves us with this question, how can that be? How, how can this be? The justice of God demands that sin be atoned for, not just simply forgiven. Great, so Jesus is God and He can say your sins are forgiven. And we can say, well, how do we know? Well, let me heal this guy and demonstrate it. Okay, great. But you just can't forgive our sins. Our sins must be paid for. See, as amazing as it is to watch Jesus heal the paralytic, which in turn proved his authority to forgive sins, the healing of the paralytic did not make forgiveness possible. Only by Jesus dying on the cross in our place for our sins can forgiveness be possible. See, my sins... And your sins had to be atoned for. But here's the question. Who can atone for their own sins? And who can atone for the sins of others? 
Well, here's the good news this morning. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news. The good news we desperately need in this world filled with bad news. So how can we be sure we are forgiven? We look to Jesus dying in our place and rising from the grave to justify us before God. That's where we look. And brothers and sisters, once we see the shadow of the cross in this particular passage, then and only then can we begin to apply it to our lives, both corporately and personally. So how do we do that? I just want to give you three quick points of application. Here's the first one. In light of seeing how this passage points us already to the cross, the first thing we see is the mission of Christ centers around His atoning death that paid for our sins so that we can be forgiven. Out of all the things that Jesus is going to do that are going to be recorded in the Gospel of Luke, it's His atoning death that's at the center. The greatest act of redemption that Jesus accomplished, which was so awe-inspiring and so amazing, didn't come from Him healing the lame man. It doesn't come from Him healing blind eyes or raising someone from the dead. No, instead, it's His sacrificial act of laying down His life for undeserving sinners like you and like me. And yet, too many people today get excited about a miracle-working Jesus. And they are uncomfortable with a wrath-bearing Jesus. And may that never be so. There are way too many people today who love how Jesus talked about loving God and loving neighbor, but they, they, they neglect to reflect on the cross, which is the greatest demonstration of love the world will ever know. So church, may it not be said of us that we love a miracle-working Jesus, but not a wrath-bearing Jesus. May we adore Christ, appreciate Christ, and have a growing affection for Christ because He is our substitute. On the cross, He paid for our sins. And may we be committed to sharing this good news with others around us. You see, the greatest need of every heart, the greatest need, not one need, the greatest need, of every heart is to be reconciled to the Lord. Which brings us to the second point of application. Man's greatest need is to be forgiven by God. Think about this story in, again. In the same way, we cannot disconnect this miracle of healing from Jesus' authority to forgive sins. You see how those two go together. The healing points to Jesus' claim that He has authority to forgive sin. In the same way we cannot disconnect those two, we cannot disconnect the physical sufferings of this man from his spiritual plight. We cannot disconnect the two. His physical suffering, we cannot disconnect from his spiritual plight, and we cannot do that in our own lives. Now let me be clear what, what I mean by making this statement. I'm not claiming that the only reason someone might be experiencing physical suffering is due to their personal sin. There may not be a direct correlation between our sin and our suffering. However, they are connected on a grand scale. How so? Listen to these words from Dr. John Piper. Sin, in fact, is why all misery exists. The third chapter of the Bible declares the entrance of sin into the world. It shows sin to be the origin of global devastation and misery. Paul summed it up in Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so, death spread to all men, because all have sinned. 
The world, he says, has been broken ever since. All its beauty is interwoven with evil and disasters and diseases and frustrations. God had created it perfect. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was good. Genesis 1.31. But from humanity's fall into sin to this very day, history for all of its wonders is a conveyor belt of corpses. The Bible does not see this brokenness as merely natural, but as a judgment of God on a world permeated with sin. So here's the question. Why did God bring a physical judgment on the world for a moral evil? Dr. Piper says Adam and Eve defied God. Their hearts turned against God. They preferred their own wisdom to his. They chose independence over trust. But in response to moral and spiritual rebellion, God subjected the physical world to disaster and misery. Why? Ever asked that question? Why? Why not leave the physical world in good order and bring misery on the human soul since that's where it all started? He says, here's my suggestion. God put the physical world under a curse so that the physical horrors we see around us in diseases and in calamities, that they would become a vivid picture of how horrible sin is. In other words, physical evil is a parable, a drama, a signpost pointing to the moral outrage of rebellion against God. Why would that be fitting? Because in our present condition, after the fall, blinded by sin, we cannot see or feel how repugnant sin is against God. Hardly anyone in the world feels the horrors of preferring other things over God. Who loses any sleep over our daily belittling of a God by neglect and defiance? Would that we all see and feel how repugnant, how offensive, how abominable it is to treat our maker with contempt, to ignore him and to distrust him and to demean him and to give him less attention in our hearts than we give the style of our hair. We need to see this, he says. And to feel this, or we will not turn to Christ for salvation from the ugliness of sin. Why do we live in a broken world? Because we have a broken relationship with God. Our greatest need isn't just to be healed. This man's greatest need was not for someone to restore his ability to walk. It was to be forgiven and made right with his maker. And that's true of us. Friends, the temptation for us all is to ignore how the brokenness of this world points to the fallenness of us as people and how much we need forgiveness. Our temptation is to look right past the brokenness of this world and see our own fallenness. But you know how else we can be tempted? We can be tempted to think in order to ensure that we are right with God and forgiven, we just need to be good people who live a good life. Friends, listen. That's exactly what the Pharisees in Jesus' day sought to do. They're here in this passage and in every passage throughout the rest of this gospel to remind us of the danger and the bankruptcy of law-keeping. That's the third and final observation. Faith in Christ is all we need to be forgiven. See, the good news of the gospel message is that you and I are not made right with God based on our 
efforts, attempting to keep the law will not only separate you from God. Listen, attempting to keep the law will not only separate you from God. Law keeping will separate you from Christ. And from the salvation he freely gives to anyone who willingly receives this gift by way of faith and repentance. And I'm concerned that there are many in our culture, but primarily there may be some in this room who've grown up under the tyranny of trying to follow all the rules and to keep all the commands of God at the same time trying to meet all the expectations of others in hopes of being right with God. If that's you this morning, can I encourage you? The only way you will ever be whole and happy in Christ is by realizing how unrelenting the mercy of Jesus is towards spiritual paralytics. Are you feeling this morning like a paralytic? Paralyzed by guilt, shame, sin, and apathy. You're in good company. And you have a merciful Savior. Here's what you must do. If you feel this morning like a spiritual paralytic look to the mercy of Christ on display at the cross. That's all of our application this morning. It's my prayer that today, in light of this passage, we will leave here with fresh faith and a heart rejoicing in what we've seen. And my prayer is that we will all leave here this morning saying, I have seen extraordinary things today. Praise be to God. Amen. Oh, Father, take these truths, write them on our hearts. And may we receive this good word that you have proclaimed to our souls this morning, that you are the merciful Christ. And that you can forgive us and heal us and restore us by us just putting our faith in you. Like the paralytic, Lord, we, we can't come to you. We can't even drag ourselves to you. But when we come to you, Lord, we're brought to you as we have been this morning through the preaching of your word. Lord, all we have to do is put our faith in you and look to the cross and rejoice in all that you've done for us. Lord, may we leave here today saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And may it affect the way we live all week long. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.